With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. 101. To First Amendment Friday on the largely provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Live now. Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and welcome to the Radio Northwest Network, serving the Pacific Northwest states, Oregon, Washington, and Idaho, with honestly provocative talk on a daily basis. Glad to be with you, and always glad to take your phone calls and your emails. Our Twitter poll question today, should Northwest Museums fire their white volunteers so they can hire people of color? I'd say no to that crazy idea. You can vote any way you like. It's brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services, and you can find it at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com, UltimateTruckService.com. Now, on the phone with me right now is our good friend Jonathan Cho, who is a journalist with the Discovery Institute. Jonathan, I'm told you you spent most of the weekend following uh, anti-Israel, pro-Hamas demonstrations going on in the Northwest. Welcome back, and tell us what you saw. Yeah, that, Lars, that uh, pretty much sums it up. It was a pretty busy weekend again. Two weekends in a row now here in the uh, Pacific Northwest, Seattle area. Uh, on Saturday, you had a massive pro-Palestine protest in downtown Seattle. Um, and then on Sunday, uh, right outside of Seattle in Bellevue, uh, another one. And these are massive crowds, uh, more than a 1,000 people each. And they're becoming louder, uh, more militant, and the signs are also becoming more provocative, uh, some with references to Hitler, some justifying the terrorist attacks, uh, some in support of Hamas. So uh, it's really changing right now. Interesting dynamics out here. Well, and it's interesting because, Jonathan, I, I was just looking at a poll, a brand-new poll. It's the Harvard-Harris poll, so it's done in conjunction with Harvard University. Listen to this because it blew me away. 51% of 18- to 24-year-olds in America, majority, believe that Hamas slaughter of 1,400 Jewish civilians was justified. Yeah, I mean, that that's what's stunning. There's a generational divide, clearly, and I'm sure the other side of that poll, I've seen some other ones as well, one out of CNN saying, if you're 65 and older in the U.S., you're, you know, 80, 90-plus percent in support of Israel uh, in this. So it's really uh, 
playing out very in very interesting ways right now from a generational standpoint. I guess what I'm thinking about is this isn't just instinctual support of one side and opposition to the other. I mean, my reaction to it was you go in and you slaughter innocent civilians and children and women and older people and babies and even toddlers and you take people hostage no matter which side you're on that's wrong and it just happens to be that the terrorists tend to work on behalf of hamas and uh, and so I, I do want to separate that out from oh well i'm on the side of the palestinians really when you find out that they're taking toddlers hostage and they've taken old people, two people uh, got released today. But we're told there are more than 200 hostages right now. And I, I don't understand how anybody, whether they supported the Palestinian cause or not, how could anybody support that kind of thing? Well, the counter to that usually now these days is, well, of course, we're against that type of brutality um, but at the same time, the Jews have been doing that to the Palestinians now for decades. So it's almost this justification, right, of what's going on here right now. And I want to point out very clearly a dynamic that's not being picked up by the mainstream press that I've seen now uh, two weekends in a row, at least in the Seattle uh, demonstrations. You have far-left activists, the Democratic Socialists, uh, as well as, you know, communists basically marching side by side, taking up the pro-Palestinian cause. And we've seen this movie before, Lars. This is exactly what happened with the BLM movement back at the height of the 2020 riots. Yeah, and that's what I'm worried about, because Jay Cho, I'm talking to Jonathan Cho, who's a journalist with the Discovery Institute. Uh, the problem is, if you say, if your cause is just, if you have can, can cite enough grievances, then it doesn't matter what you do. Killing babies, that's okay. Killing old people, that's okay. That kind of moral thinking where you say if your cause is honest and if your cause is, uh, is, so shows sufficient grievances, anything you do is, is fair game. Because that's what it sounds like it is. And, and that's some of what I think we saw on a much smaller scale in the Antifa BLM riots a few years ago. Where they said, well, we've been oppressed and we've been colonized and, and we're, we're continuing to be under the thumb uh, of this group. So therefore, we can burn your cities, we can loot your stores, we can murder people, and it's okay. Yeah, we're not seeing that quite yet, but it's really interesting you bring that up. Because again, it's only been, what, three going on four years since the height of the 2020 BLM riots. And it all started out back in the day with parents, grandparents, children marching in that in those BLM protests. Fast forward to today, we're seeing the same thing right now. But I think depending on how this Israel-Hamas war goes, it might start becoming more militant, more aggressive, more violent. There could be destruction in the streets. So in all of these protest situations here, you have dozens of police officers closely watching, because, again, at least here in Seattle and the Pacific Northwest, this isn't our first rodeo. Well, and what happens then when the police do, if they're doing it this time the way they did during the Antifa BLM riots, where you said, well, we have a mostly peaceful protest, except it turns into a riot. And you say that's only a few of them. Most of them were just there holding placards and, you know, shouting uh, slogans and things like that. You say, yeah, but the few dozen who are doing real damage were sending people to the hospital. And at least three dozen cases, they sent people to the morgue. Is that okay? And they say, oh, no, we're just in favor of the mass protest, but not the violent part. I don't see how you separate the two. Yeah, I think this time around, and that's the sense I'm getting, I talked to several law enforcement uh, sources over the weekend as well, and they said they are very aware they're treating these protests like they treated 
uh, the BLM riots towards the tail end when they decided, the police officers, that is, not to put up with this uh, anymore. And, and they started going in and actually making arrests. So, you know, I truly believe uh, this time around, uh, if it maintains as it's been the past couple weekends in a row, we're not going to see any violence or destruction. But at any moment, these massive crowds uh, can devolve. And that's the concern right now. Well, and the other concern, and you said it a moment ago, their argument is, well, Israel's been doing this to us for a long time. Actually, they haven't. Israel supplies the electricity, the water, the building materials, and all these other things to Gaza. And all they say is, don't attack us. And the Gazans say, no, we're going to actually take some of that stuff you send us and use it to attack you. And I would think any reasonable person would say, you're telling me the Gazans are the oppressed people, the ones who keep launching terrorist attacks into Israel while being supplied with most of the necessities of life by Israel and the Jewish people? Yeah, and, and that's the saddest part, right? It's the civilians, the Palestinians who are under the Hamas rule. Um, you, you're seeing right now the aid going into Gaza. And, and, you know, one of my colleagues here, Ari Hoffman, uh, also pointed out that a lot of these supplies uh, have, you know, from Japan, and they're ending up right in the hands of Hamas, not into yep. the hands of civilians. Uh, so that's another dynamic there as well. Uh, again, the issue here is Hamas, not the Palestinian civilians. And it wouldn't be the first time that things like food and water and electricity under the control of somebody else, like, say, a Somali warlord, are used to keep a civilian population where you want them. That's the journalist Jonathan Cho from the Discovery Institute. Jonathan, thanks very much. Back in a moment, and you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network and the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. With me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Wise words from President Reagan. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. We the people are the driver. The government is the car. And we decide where it should go. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Monday. It's the Radio Northwest Network. Uh, 26 radio stations that serve the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. And have, I'm, they're not suggesting illegal. 
uh, illegally doing this, but they're to go out and have as much sex as they possibly can without any consideration uh, for for any of the ordinary things that a lot of us would associate with sex, sex uh, between married people, sex between husband and wife, sex between a boyfriend and girlfriend, uh, monogamous sex, all of those things thrown to the winds, just have more sex, please, is the headline the New York Times ran above this piece. And it drew the attention of our friend Wesley Smith, who's an author and a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. And usually I talk to Wes about... Uh, things like uh, new developments in technology that actually threaten to mess with what human beings are and some of those kinds of things. Wes, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Lars. Copulate, copulate, copulate. That's what they're saying at the good old New York Times. This Magdalene Taylor or Magdalene Taylor is promoting promiscuity as socially desirable as a cure for loneliness. This caught your eye. Uh, describe to my audience why you found this so disturbing. Yeah, it wasn't about, you know, whether or not uh, one should have sex outside of marriage or not. That's going beyond my jurisdiction. Mine but too. it really does promote hedonism and, and literally uh, prom promiscuity. And promiscuity is not a benign activity. A promiscuity leads to unintended pregnancies, which, of course, adds to the number of abortions. It leads to a major transmission of venereal diseases, sexually transmitted diseases, uh, there's a, a strain of supergonorrhea going around now that uh, apparently is resistant to all but one uh, antibiotic. It can lead to depression. It can lead to all kinds of very negative things. I mean, sex is a very, as we know, as adults, very powerful um, activity, and it can really you know, <laughs> grab you, obviously. But it needs to be, it seems to me, for adults, uh, exercised responsibly. And this this piece didn't even distinguish between adults engaging in intimate relations and teenagers, which I think is really irresponsible. I, I guess I could even add to your list monkeypox, because didn't we finally find out while sure. the both feds and local health authorities were didn't want to say it, but they said virtually all of the monkeypox was being spread by one particular kind of sex between men, uh, and it was gay sex, and, and you're saying, okay, so we know what's doing it. They didn't even want to talk about that openly, but having, you know, multiple partner anonymous sexual encounters among gay men was almost the only spreader of this disease, uh, you know, last year when, when that was the, you know, the disease of the week, as it will, as you will. Yeah, and, and the, the, Peace itself didn't get into the differences, you know, if any, between uh, homosexuality and heterosexuality and this kind of thing. Uh, the uh, illustrations over the piece, there were four of them, uh, of people kissing and, and getting naked and so forth, nothing pornographic, but uh, dealt with uh, different uh, sexes. But um, also HIV. I mean, HIV is spread quite a bit through sexual contact, and even though HIV is no longer a terminal condition, it's still a very serious condition, and if you contract HIV, uh, you will, in order not to die, you will have to have a lifetime of, um, of prophylactic antivirals, uh, which also have their own side effects and can also be very expensive uh, for yourself if you're not insured or for society. It's just not a responsible uh, approach to say, just go out and do it. Just go out and do it without getting into the uh, the problems associated with it. And the reason why I wrote this is I've seen other articles in other venues lamenting 
that people are not having enough sex. And I've always thought to myself, why is that something to lament uh, since it might mean that people are acting actually more responsibly? Uh, but once it appeared in the New York Times, the paper of record and so forth, I thought it needed to be discussed and, and brought forth, so I wrote the piece in the Epic Times. Well, and, and I was glad to see it because when I saw it, I mean, this literally headline, have more sex, please. And she wrote, sex is good, sex is healthy, sex is an essential part of our social fabric. Do you know what I thought of when you quoted that in the piece you wrote? Um, uh, I'm used to, on almost a daily basis, we'll hear about some horrible crime that's been committed somewhere. Somebody walks in and shoots a bunch of people. And, and, uh, and sometimes it's just a psychotic act the way it appears to have been at Mi Michigan State University. But I've told my producers, I said, uh, a lot of times I'm going to guess this this may have been some kind of, tr you know, triangle. Boyfriend, girlfriend, and estranged girlfriend oh, yeah. or estranged boyfriend. And and the, the cops will tell you about a third of the time that's it. So while those relationships, which are usually sec almost exclusively sexual relationships, when they go south, you know, when 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 somebody is unhappy with the way, you know, uh, various people have hooked up to use that terminology, um, sometimes they go absolutely nuts. It drives them to do crazy things. Now, I'm not justifying those crazy things. I'm just saying that when the police say, yep, this this looks like a boyfriend, girlfriend or ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend kind of situation. And people end up dead in some cases. Yeah, you know. Sex, as I mentioned, is a very powerful force. And I think that uh, that the institutions of this country should be promoting responsibility in the engagement of intimate relations, not licentiousness. It's just not healthy for the society. And then there's the issue of out-of-wedlock births. 40% of births in this country today are out-of-wedlock uh, I, I saw, I did a little research when I, you know, wrote this piece. Just, uh, just uh, uh, gosh, I think 20 years ago it was 18%. That's not good. Um, of course, single parents can be very wonderful parents. Kids can thrive with single parents. But you also see more poverty. You see more family dysfunction and so forth if you're, if you're not having a, uh, a um, I think, father and mother. But um, without getting into that issue, at least two parents taking care of the children. And somebody who feels responsible. I'm talking to Wesley Smith from the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. The other thing I wanted to circle back to her original premise. If we've got the problem of people who are feeling lonely, go out and have multiple partner sex with different people and that'll make you happier. Is there any reason to believe that that would, that would be a good thing or that that is going no, to cure people's loneliness? For some, for some people, not everyone, it leads to uh, depression. Low self-esteem. I mean, you have to respect yourself. If you're just sweeping around, um, male or female, there's a certain lack of respect for yourself, particularly considering the uh, dangers you're facing in doing this. And and you're not going to you're not going to end up in a in a situation of commitment if you're moving from bed to bed to bed. And people are happier when they're committed, when they're with each other, when you feel safe, when you feel secure, when you feel supported. Uh, this is just basic human um, biology, I think, because there is just a basic desire for, for happiness to be connected with, with special people, not to be just moving like a butterfly from flower to flower to flower. 
That is Wesley Smith from the Center on Human Exceptionalism. I'm glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. The Lars Larson Show. Disagree with Lars? Good. You get to go first at 866-HEY-LARS. Now, here's Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. But along with all the other self-imposed crises that America has now created for itself, and they are largely self-created, and they could be self-corrected if we chose, we have another one. We're short of fathers for kids. By that, I don't mean that we're short of sperm donors. We are short of fathers, actual fathers for kids. And the guy who knows that subject best is Eric Swithin, who's the founder of the Alliance for Ending the Fatherless Epidemic and the maker of a brand-new documentary called The Fatherless Epidemic. Eric, it's good to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Lord. Is there a way to uh, describe in a capsule how bad this situation is and where it's headed? You know, if you were to draw on a graph, you know, from one side of the page to the other, highlighting just about every single societal ill, they would all intersect at fatherlessness. So this is not just a matter of correlation. This is causation. What I'm saying, to be absolutely clear, is that the majority of our societal ills stem from the breakdown of our family. And it makes sense, right? If you have a broken home, then you have a broken community. And if you have broken communities, you have a broken culture. I'd agree with you about all of that. I mean, if you say, well, well what's a problem? Drug dealing and the violence that goes along with that trade, uh, kids getting involved in it. If there's a dad in the home, probably substantially less likelihood that a kid becomes involved in criminal activity. Not guaranteed by any stretch, but but uh, but more less likely to happen. Uh, pregnancies you cite as one of the problems. Uh, that's another problem. And, uh, and, and it goes on from there. But start with those two. If you could avoid, you know, unintended pregnancies at a young age, that solves a problem for both the boys and the girls, uh, who are underage. Uh, and if you, and if you have a dad who's in the father, uh, who's in the family who actually goes to a job every day, then he provides a real life example of how you live in a society like ours, uh, to a young man. If, if he doesn't have that example, uh, other things may happen. Absolutely. And you mentioned crime, right? And I don't yep. think people realize just how much crime alone can explain the problem. Let me just give you a little bit of a, a teaser. Last year, 80.7 billion tax dollars were spent on prison expenditures and estimates of how many of those prisoners come from a fatherless home range from 80 to 90%. And if you look a little bit further, there's a really strong statistic that says 279% of those that carry guns illegally and deal drugs come from fatherless homes. Uh, girls that come from a fatherless home are 900% more vulnerable to sexual abuse. Boys that come from a fatherless home are 14 times more likely to become rapists. 
So the prison expenditures alone is an astronomical cost, but you're not even talking about court fees. You're not talking about the uh, the economics of it from a society standpoint across the board, what those crimes cause emotionally and socially. All right, Eric, I want to try something. I'm talking to Eric Swithin, who's at the Alliance for Ending the Fatherless Epidemic and the maker of a new documentary called The Fatherless Epidemic. I've got my own ideas about how we're making this happen. But if you diagnose the causes of this fatherless epidemic and, and what you think might fix it, and then I want to ask you about a couple of my ideas. Well, it's really easy to try to diagnose it by looking at politics. And I know you'll probably comment on it, but the fact is I do not believe that the answer is more politics. I think that the answer unequivocally has to follow the data. And if you look at the data, the majority of volunteers in our country, those that are doing foster care, that are adopting, those that are mentoring, both in religious organizations and outside of religious organizations, but they're doing it because of their religious convictions, primarily Christian convictions, the church is the one that is picking up most of the slack already. And if you look at polls and data, what it suggests that most of those Christians have thought about doing foster care and adopting. And if we just doubled that amount, we could literally eradicate the 400,000 kids that age out of the foster care system every year. Okay. Let me throw this at you. You can, you can call it more politics. I actually think it's less politics. I think the government pays people uh, to have fatherless families. I, I think they, the government effectively says, to be blunt, if you're a young lady and, and you have no, no a, whatever you want to call it, significant other, partner, husband, whatever, boyfriend, uh, we'll send you a check if you have a child. If you have another child, we'll send you a bigger check. We'll get, we'll, we'll get you a subsidized apartment. We'll send you to, uh, food stamps and TANF and a number of other ways of helping, except one requirement is, for the most part, you have to stay single. If, on the other hand, you had welfare reform that there was in the in the 90s, and you said, look, this is not going to be a lifetime gravy train, you, an awful lot of young women went out and said, I'm going to find a father or at least somebody, a male, uh, to be in the family and, and perhaps provide some of the family's needs. And you got an awful lot of, of, of change that happened by getting the government out of people's business. I think the government is paying young ladies to stay single when they have children. And if you pay something to do it, generally to pay someone some money to do something, they'll generally do it. You and I are cut from the same cloth. I completely agree, but I'm going to add one extra thing to it. If you're to watch our film, The Fatherless Epidemic, you'll hear a little bit about my story. I should be dead or in prison. I was wrapped up in the gang scene and in crime. I was going to be just another statistic. And part of my story is that my dad, um, who sadly he passed away last night, uh, but my I'm father, sorry to hear that, Eric. he sorry. was pushed out. Thank, thank you. I appreciate that. He uh, lost his fight against cancer. But he never gave up fighting for us, even though the court system tried to be the mediator, the counselor, the judge, and the jury and push him out of our lives. And you're right. There's economic, economic incentive for the fathers not to be in the home. But simultaneously, Christian organizations who really were at the epicenter of strong families in this country, they were also at the epicenter of starting the universities, 
starting orphanages. They were at the epicenter of mentorship programs. When the government began to incentivize this sort of thing, simultaneously Christian organizations began to back up and be less engaged. And so it was a combination of those two things happening simultaneously, and you can trace it back to when welfare really took heart. I think you're right, Eric. And, and the other thing about that, I've found that most faith groups expect something of you. That is, they'll say, hey, you're short on food, we'll give you a box. When you keep showing up and they say, we know of a job you could work and you could earn money and buy your own food. If the person says, no, you're giving me free food, why would I want to go get a job? A sensible you know, faith organization is going to say, you know what, we're not going to give you continual freebies unless you help yourself as well. And uh, we expect something of you. Government agencies have a tendency not to do that, and I think it's disabling. You're spot on, and that is in our DNA as created beings. You know, just like there's a tremendous importance of there being a father figure in the home to model the exact things you speak of, as Christians, we look to a father in heaven who models those things perfectly. And I tell people this all the time. I work with some of the roughest kids in this country. I tell them this every single time I get a chance to. You cannot be in God's will, fulfilling his purpose for your life, and be on welfare. Absolutely right. Eric Swithin, who is the founder of the Alliance for Ending the Fatherless Epidemic. The brand new documentary is called The Fatherless Epidemic. We'll be back in a moment. I'll get to your phone calls and emails. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest As interest, I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. To all the wookie snowflakes, yes, you are probably going to be offended. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. You know, I always approve when I hear that somebody, a law-abiding citizen in the United States, has decided to exercise their Second Amendment rights. I mean, of course, it's something I would never force on anybody and say, you have to own a gun. 
But do I think it's sensible to own a gun? Yes. And do I think it's sensible to take it with you, especially if you think you might be going to a venue that could pose some risks? Absolutely. I think it's great. So I, I saw this story about women who had decided to arm themselves, go to the range, practice, learn the skills, and then find a way to concealed carry that pistol. I thought, this is great. But the thing that makes it notable in this case is this: these are women from a particular group. They're Jewish women, and they've apparently said, uh, despite the fact it may pose some challenges, given dress codes and things like that, we're going to carry concealed because America has become much more dangerous uh, for that group in particular, not just women, but Jewish women. I thought we'd talk about that with Rabbi Yaakov Menken, who is the managing director at the Coalition for Jewish Values, the largest rabbinic public policy organization in America. Uh, Rabbi, welcome back. Thank you so much. Glad to be back with you. We sent you this story because I was curious. I don't know if you'd run into it before, but they said there are apparently a fairly large number of women, uh, especially those who live in California, which is not exactly a gun-friendly state these days, although there are people there who understand it's a good idea to protect yourself. And they've decided to, to take on not just the task of learning to handle a pistol, but having to work it in with some other uh, dress, if I can call it that, dress code strictures uh, because of their religious beliefs. Is America becoming that dangerous for Jewish people? I, I do think, as, as you apparently do, that it's simply prudent at this point. When the criminals have guns, you don't want a situation where only the criminals have guns. And it's certainly true that there have been far too many random attacks on visibly Orthodox Jews for the Orthodox Jewish community not to be giving uh, renewed thought to arming themselves. And I, I know that that's going on in my community and in Maryland, and I'm sure that, you know, I, it was not a surprise to see this article out of California. Well, and sadly, in New York State, you, you've got some, you've got a really tough haul to be able to carry concealed in that state, and yet there's a large Jewish population in New York, and they don't really have, for the most part, don't have that option, do they? It is difficult, but there are fights for it going on. Um, and there is that doctrine that says better to be tried by 12 than carried yeah. by 6. <laughs> and I subscribe to that doctrine as well. Would you mind doing this and do it delicately, Rabbi? But how is it much, perhaps much tougher or somewhat tougher for Jewish women, especially Orthodox Jewish women, to be able to carry a gun? Why is that tougher? Well, it's more that it's like there's a stereotype that the guys are the ones carrying the guns, the guys are the ones going out to fight, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's more like a pattern than a specific uh, problem. But given what's going on, it, it is prudent for, you know, un unfortunately, I mean, you, you think about women of, of all kinds, especially in, in many communities where it's simply not safe for a woman out alone at night. It's not a bad idea for a woman to have a concealed firearm. No, and in fact, I've, it's, it's prudent. I'm sorry, uh, Rabbi, I've talked to women who, whose families didn't at all like the idea that they had been encouraged to carry a gun, usually by a, a male friend of theirs, usually a boyfriend, would say, hey, you ought to carry a gun. And I've talked to at least one woman who was either saved from assault or perhaps even death because she was carrying the very weapon that her parents thoroughly disagreed with. But her boyfriend thought it was a good idea, and it turned out, about nine months after she started carrying, uh, that that uh, it turned out to uh, to actually save her life or at least save her safety. 
Let me ask you about another issue. You mentioned the attacks. These just sort of random attacks, not targeted because the attacker knows the person, which is what an awful lot of crimes are, sadly, is that the, uh, the person who's doing the assault knows the person they're assaulting. They may be a family member, a friend, or somebody they, they deal with. But there have been a lot more attacks in just the last couple of years under the Biden administration. And I know people say, Lars, everything isn't political that way. But we've seen a lot of things defended by both Biden and the Democrats, even members of Congress who's come out with really, truly evil things. Elhan Omar comes to mind um, and Rashida Tlaib comes to mind. Uh, and, and this stuff is not condemned by the very people who a couple of years ago were condemning Donald Trump, the grandfather of Jewish children, as being an anti-Semite. But it truly seems like the Democrats uh, ought to own a lot more of that. There really is a problem going on now. I mean, just today, uh, Biden said, I'll get in trouble for this. He meant a different sort of trouble. And he said to Omar, you look beautiful today. And then to Tlaib, she looks beautiful today. Just yesterday, Tlaib responded to McCarthy. Uh, Speaker McCarthy is over in Israel and talking about the unbreakable bond between Israel and the United States. And Tlaib is claiming, you know, it's an apartheid state founded on wars and ethnic cleansing. Well, yeah, that's true in that... Uh, it was founded on wars because when the, the Jews said, fine, we'll take partition, we'll participate, and the Arabs will have a state of their own too, the Arab League said, no, we're going to massacre all the Jews. So that was the war. And the ethnic cleansing was the removal of the Jews throughout northern Africa, throughout most of the Middle East. There's not an Arab state today with even 5% of the Jews they had in 1948. And most of them ended up as refugees in Israel. So Israel's population owes itself to ethnic cleansing, but Israel's not the perpetrator thereof, as she claims. Rabbi, thank you very much. That's Rabbi Yaakov Menken. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on, Rabbi. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. Welcome to First Amendment Friday on the Lars Larson Show. Thank God it's Friday! Today, Lars puts you in the driver's seat. You talk about what you want to talk about. Government is the problem. No topic is off limits. You're a lying dog-faced pony soldier. Call 866-A-Lars. That's 866-A-Lars. All men and women created by go, you know the go, you know the thing. Now, First Amendment Friday with Lars Larson. 
listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's the Radio Northwest Network serving Oregon, Washington, and Idaho with honestly provocative talk every single day. I want to talk about transportation a bit. I mentioned to you a bit earlier today that California is now going to ban diesel trucks and gasoline trucks. They'll do this within a little more than a decade. And I think a lot of people are now wondering, well, we have 1.8 million trucks that deliver everything to everyone in the state. Every stitch of clothing, every bit of fuel, all kinds of materials. How are we going to get that stuff where it's going? California, in its infinite collective wisdom, has said, we're going to do that on electric trucks and hydrogen trucks. And you say, we don't have those yet. Yeah, but you will by the time you need them. Just take our word for it. On that note, Charles Prestrude joins me now, who's the Coles Center for Transportation Director. Uh, Charles, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Lars. Happy to be here. I'm glad to have you. I'm, I, I always anticipate that when Gavin Newsom and the state of California do something stupid, that Washington and Oregon are not far behind. Does the new transportation budget passed out of the legislature of $13.5 billion, does it do some of that? I'm afraid so. Um, the good news is it doesn't mandate uh, the clean trucks the way California does, but it does budget $2 million for a study of the infrastructure and incentives needed to encourage purchase of zero-emission, medium, and heavy-duty vehicles, as well as cargo handling and off-road equipment. So we're headed in that direction, but we're not as far down that road as California. Two million bucks just to study the idea. I mean, I would think that if, if you had... See, Charles, maybe I'm being simplistic about this, but if you're a company that has trucks, I imagine you have people who want to sell trucks to you beating down your door just about every day of the week. So if a trucking company says, well, we usually buy a good diesel rig like this, and some salesman comes and says, hey, we got this snazzy little battery-powered long-haul truck, and, and, and over time, which is how most companies buy equipment, uh, it will actually be cheaper to operate and cheaper to own than the diesel truck. Anybody with that pitch, if they can actually you know, show that the pitch is valid, uh, the company will say, hey, come on in, have a cup of coffee. Tell us about your new trucks. We'll buy some of them if they're cheaper to own and operate than the ones we use right now. We could let the system do that. Forcing it suggests to me that the new trucks don't make sense and may never or may soon. But but instead, the state's going to flush two million bucks to have a bunch of people sit around and think about the idea. Uh, I think you're pretty much on target there. Uh, the, the market is really going to drive this. Uh, businessmen are not stupid. They couldn't stay in business if they were. And the, the truck manufacturers are pretty smart, too. So uh, when the technology advances to the point where it's advantageous for trucking companies and shippers, uh, we'll see that adopted. Uh, until then, uh, studying it doesn't really change the outcome. So it might have been cheaper to save the $2 bucks for Washington state taxpayers and just let California be out on the bleeding edge, and we can learn from how things play out there. Yeah, the other thing I've wondered about, Charles, is when California does this and says we're not going to let any of these trucks in our state, what happens to all the long-haul freight that may leave the port of Tacoma or port of Seattle, and it's headed down to somewhere in California, 
And they're told, oh, you can't bring that kind of truck into California. It effectively forces California's choices on at least all the states that immediately surround. Same thing if a, a, a cargo is going from the port of Oakland to some place in Oregon. You say, well, you can drive a diesel as soon as you get to the Oregon border, but you have to have an electric or a hydrogen truck to bring it to the border. Well, that forces that choice on everybody in the Northwest, doesn't it? Or... Uh, what will happen is you'll have truckers going to the border of California, <clears throat> dropping their trailers, <laughs> and uh, truckers in California will take it the rest of the way, which is not an efficient way uh, to move cargo around the country. You think? I, I, think the, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, I think the hope on the part of uh, the California uh, policymakers is that it will have exactly the, the effect you described, which is to... Um, make it more attractive or harder to escape uh, the surrounding states so that Oregon, Arizona, Nevada, and ultimately Washington will have to get on board with the zero-emission vehicles. That's what I think they're trying to do. So that means California gets to interfere with interstate commerce. I, I seem to remember something in the Constitution about that that doesn't allow it. But let's talk about, speaking of inefficient transportation, $1.3 for the Washington State Ferry System for five brand-new hybrid electric ferries, except how's the process going building the one they've already got budgeted for and in process but can't seem to come up with somebody to build it? Uh, well, uh, the process got terminated is what happened. Um, back in 2018, the ferry system had a contract with Vigor Industries, which is the big shipyard here, uh, to build more diesel-powered ferries. But the uh, governor issued an executive order which directed the ferry system uh, to move towards a zero-emission fleet. And this meant electric or hybrid electric-powered ferries. And so the ferry system spent the next three years planning, designing, and negotiating with the shipyard on these hybrid electric ferries. Unfortunately, after all that time and effort and millions of dollars spent on design work, they were unable to reach agreement with the shipyard. So the legislature in this session said, we're going back to the drawing board. They're going to issue a new request for proposals, which is open to shipyards anywhere in the United States, not just limited to Washington State. And it encourages the shipyards to uh, make or suggest design modifications so that the new design will be more affordable. Uh, that's all good news. The bad news is it means that no new ferries are going to be added to the fleet until 2027 at the earliest, and it may be beyond that. So, so you've got urgently energy, needed ferries, be, urgently needed that? ferries that, that now are pushed back four more years? Uh, it'll be 2027 uh, at the earliest uh, before new ferries enter the fleet which means the ferry system is going to have a real challenge keeping their existing very old ferries running because they already break down more often than they'd like. Oh, and by the way, I didn't. I must have missed that day in physics class when they said if something can't be built that way by the shipyard, and they say we can't build it the way you want us to build it, you know, light enough, I guess the weight was one problem. All you have to do is have the legislature pass a law, and the physics of building a boat changes. Is that the way it works, Charles? Because you're the expert. <laughs> well, not quite that way. The shipyard could build it, but uh, it was going to be very expensive, uh, way, way over what the legislature budgeted. 
So it was, I think, more of a budget problem than a physics problem, though in this case, you're right, they, they go together. Yeah, they, they kind of do go together. Uh, you know, just like I'd like a fancy sports car, but the problem is they cost too darn much and they don't carry enough people. Charles, thanks for what you do at the Washington Policy Center and I at the Coles Center for Transportation. We appreciate it. Thank you. You betcha. That's Charles Prestrude from the Coles Center for Transportation. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges, but how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. Warning consumers, this can happen to you. You know, if I can digress for just a second. Last night I was on the television. You know, on television. I was on the telephone. And, you know, <laughs> anyway, uh, This is what can happen when you order a president by mail. Next time, pick your president in person. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the first of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your calls. I want you to think about something for a moment. I, I guess depending on how you view history, I would say that food banks in one form or another have been around for at least hundreds of years. Uh, now, the modern version is quite different than the old ones, where you might have had a community group, maybe it was the Odd Fellows, maybe it was the local church, that put together boxes of food for the needy. But these days, food banks are big operations. In many cases, they're multi-million dollar operations. And unlike, uh, say, 100 or 200 years ago, uh, they're oftentimes funded either uh, in large part or in part by government and by taxes, in, in meaning it's not charity out of your pocket. It's money taken out of your pocket by the IRS or the Department of Revenue in your state, and it's uh, it's allocated to that food bank. They're not asking you for it. They get it, for, uh, they get it from the government one way or another. And then the question comes up, what happens when the food banks start to uh, insert politics into the decision-making? And the most blunt way I could find of saying it, should food banks prioritize the help they give based on the recipient's race, gender, and pronouns? Well, it's happening. It's happening. And the case in point we've got from National Review is the Oregon Food Bank, which has received tens of millions of dollars 
uh, in just the last couple of years, almost all of it from the government. It has a CEO who makes about $200,000 a year. And the food bank has announced, yep, we know the root causes of hunger are systemic injustices, and we will prioritize the help we give based on, uh, let's see, I want to make sure I read this accurately. Uh, we commit to center on those most disproportionately experiencing hunger, black, indigenous, and people of color, immigrants and refugees, gender expansive folks, including two-spirit. Well, I thought I'd talk to our friend Dan Mornoff, who joins us now. He's an attorney. Don't hold that against him. Founder of the American Civil Rights Project and a guest on this show. Dan, welcome. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So tell me this. Uh, let's let's get cut right to the chase before we get into the details. Is it legal for an institution to say we're going to feed people, but we're going to feed them and center our efforts on people based on their skin color, their gender, and their pronouns? Right. Um, so it's like one of the two programs that we seemingly know that the Oregon Food Bank has going, and that's relevant, right? And um, that first one, I mean. At first blush, it certainly sounds like it's illegal. It sounds like they're um, choosing their beneficiaries and therefore discriminating in their beneficiaries based on um, race, color, national origin, among other um, among other bases. And that, that would be a facial violation of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. On the other hand, if you read that language real closely, I mean, I don't actually know what it means to center those most disproportionately who most disproportionately experience hunger in our service area. I, I mean, it may mean everything, and, or it may mean absolutely nothing. That that might just be, you know, virtue signaling fluff. Um, to the extent it means something, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's an admission of illegality. Uh, on the other hand, uh, the second program that I know that they do have, because they've also bragged about this one, um, it's more straightforward. They've, they've also said that they've, they've created a, a fund that specifically contracts with BIPOC immigrant, refugee, and other growers. And that, that's, that's contracting. I know what contracting means. And if you're only contracting with people, or if you're deciding who to contract with or who not to contract with based on race, that's illegal. That's been illegal since 1866. Um, so uh, that, that was the very first civil rights enactment. It's uh, the one that the 14th Amendment was written to constitutionalize. Um, so I, I have no idea why they think this might be legal, but I'm, I'm pretty confident. It, I, again, at least from what I understand, it doesn't look like it is. Well, you know, Dan, I, uh, I, I'm not a lawyer like you are, uh, but I, I've invented a rule they probably don't teach in law school. And it's the 16 year old boy rule. And the way it works when I was 16, if I, if I said to my friends, Hey, we're doing this thing, whatever that thing was, you know, we're <laughs> going down the road at a hundred miles an hour. Is this legal? Can we do this? And they say, we can till we get caught. I think that's the theory they're using. We can till we get caught, till somebody calls us out. And in fact, if I went to you, Dan, as an attorney and said, hey, I'm angry about this. I think they're violating the law. What would I have to do to achieve standing to object to what they're doing? Right. So um, the clearest person who would have standing to say something about this would well one would be um the federal departments that are giving them money would definitely have under title six the right to investigate what they're doing of course that's this administration and they probably don't care 
Um, the next clearest person who would have the ability to do something about this would be, say, if you're a grower of food that would contract with the Oregon Food Bank, uh, even better if you used to contract with the Oregon Food Bank, but you can't or you won't or they won't contract with you now because you're the wrong race. If you've been discriminated against in that way, then you can directly sue and say, you know, this is an entity which is violating my rights under 42 U.S.C. 1981 under Title VI um, and the like. But, um, do, do, I have to prove, do I have to prove problems. that they actually denied me the contract or just say, you can't offer to contract with farmers and then say, by the way, we're going to contract most, even if they said mostly with black farmers, you can't do that any more than a, a store, a, a convenience store couldn't say, well, we occasionally have a person of color in here, but mostly our services are offered to white people. That's where we, we put our services out. That would be illegal and it'd be wrong, right? I, if you had, a, let me say it a little differently. If, you know, if a store said, Sure, sometimes black people come in, but mostly the people who shop here are white. There's nothing wrong with that. If they're making a factual statement about who their contracts are with, that's just fine. If, on the other hand, they have a policy because they've set up a fund to specifically contract with people on the basis of race and therefore to exclude from some set-aside quota of their contracts other growers on the basis of their race, Especially illegal. And it would require that they go to court and spend a bunch of money, probably. Yeah. Probably not going to get a lot of money. So I don't know that they get a lawyer to work on, you know, on a basis of a fee later on based on what they win. But that's probably what they figure. We can get away with this because who's going to challenge us? Some farmer out there that hopes to get our business and can't get our business because he or she has white skin, is a straight white farmer, male or female and they're not going to get our business, they would have to sue. They would have to say, I think I'm being harmed by this. Dan, I appreciate you coming on for a moment with a little free legal advice. We always appreciate it. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's Dan Mornoff, who's executive director of the American Civil Rights Project, not the American Crooks and Lawyers Union. No, we don't. They won't come on this show, by the way. So don't, I mean, we'd invite them on, but they wouldn't. But can you imagine that? A food bank that says, yeah, lots of hungry people out there, but we're going to focus your tax dollars on feeding the ones who have the right skin color or the right gender or the right pronoun because they're fighting, as they say on their site, settler colonialism. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. of the people. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to take your phone calls and your emails at 866-HEY-LARS. You know, uh, I, always, uh, I always tell you if I have a dog in the fight. So if I have a bias on a particular subject, I tell you about that bias. I'm pro-life. And uh, the fact is, I'm proud to be pro-life. 
The problem is, in politics, there's some strange things going on. I mean, and I get, it's almost guaranteed to get stranger in about the next 14 months. So I thought we'd talk to Sean Carney, who is CEO and president of 40 Days for Life. Sean, welcome back to the program. Good to be back. Thanks for having me. So I'm pro-life, you're pro-life, uh, and, and some of the Republicans are saying we're going to move away from using that word uh, or that phrase, that term, uh, pro-life, and move to something else. What's going on there? <laughs> I think what's going on is there's a very dangerous combination of stupidity and stubbornness in that they can't articulate abortion the debate was just cringeworthy. Nikki Haley's like accusing us of wanting to put people on death row for having an abortion. I mean, her comments were absurd. Um, they don't know how to talk about this, so they're running from it. Now they're trying to change the language. Um, by the way, language that has always been to our advantage, uh, the term pro-life has been a, a wonderful thing for you. It's just so positive and it's, it's helped politically because it's so easy to say what you just said, which is I'm pro-life. Um, so, I don't know why they're doing this. They're sort of ashamed that, that Roe was overturned. And when you look at strong Republicans who owned this in the 2022 midterm, they won, and they won handedly. Greg yeah. Abbott, he he crushed Beto and, and was outspent. It wasn't even close. Um, uh, K- Governor Kemp, Governor DeSantis, obviously, like the landslide victory he had in Florida, none of them ran from abortion. They were proudly pro-life. They were glad that the Supreme Court was dragging us out of 1973 science, and they got with the times. And now there's just this tendency that it seems like Republicans are terrified that it's going to come up in daily conversation. Well, but here's the thing I don't understand. This seems like a great opportunity, and I'll tell you what I mean by that, Sean. You've got the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris, who is pro-abortion. Now, I know she'd rather call it pro-choice, but just last weekend... She was asked by, I think it was Margaret Brennan at CBS News, said, look, how late in a term of a baby's gestation are you in favor of allowing abortions? And she won't answer the question. And we, and by not answering, we know exactly where she is. She wants to wait. Until, she, she's okay with it up to the last two nanoseconds before that baby comes out of mom. And But she doesn't want to say it because she knows that's hugely unpopular. Whereas when you say, I'm pro-life. I'm in favor of life. As you say, it's a great way to say it. It's simple, and it gets the idea across it's not dishonest. I've always thought pro-choice was dishonest because then you get, you know, folks like Joe Biden saying, well, I'm Catholic, and, uh, you know, I'm not officially personally in favor of abortion, but I'm in favor of anybody else who wants to have an abortion having an abortion. And you go, how do you wrap your head around that? Those are the people who have a tough time explaining it. I think the Republicans are having a tough time. The term pro-life are just gutless cowards. But you may want to say something more politic than that, Sean. No, no, I think gutless and, and ignorant, actually, uh, because they're, they're, this is a golden opportunity, as you just said. By the way, we shouldn't be changing our terms. They're the ones changing theirs. <laughs> There's now this outward denial of abortion survivors don't exist. DeSantis made up the story about Penny. He's like, no, I mean, I'm no. not Penny at the March for Life. I can <laughs> confirm that she's alive uh, and that the abortion attempts on her life failed. But they typically don't get into that. They're denying that late-term abortion exists, that they that they want abortion up till 40 weeks. We heard Jen Psaki say that. They're just denying the things that they have 
not reluctantly supported the last few years, but have celebrated. Governor Cuomo lit up the freaking Empire State Building to celebrate abortion through all 40 weeks in New York. So that they are the ones that are sort of running, and I think that these are, are great opportunities to go on offense on, on abortion. And I don't know why they're running from it. I think that they, they really feel bad. I guess that the Supreme Court overturned Roe. They but why? The question. Sean, why do they feel badly that, number one, the issue was not overturning abortion, but saying the states get to decide? And, and I, you know, because that seems like such a loser issue anyway, saying, you mean California gets to decide for California and Illinois gets to decide for Illinois? Who could be against that? Oh, the Democrats are against it? Well, okay, do you want to vote for people who say that folks in New York City should be making decisions for people in Iowa? Go ahead, run on that. See how that works out. Good luck to you. Yeah, that happened a couple of years ago when Alabama banned abortion. And they said, this is so extreme. And I'm like, well, why not? If they can do abortion at 40 weeks, without a doctor, by the way, in the New York bill, why can't Alabama say we don't want any of this? You people are psychos. And so I think that the uh, reluctancy is that somehow they feel that they have lost the compassionate side of the argument. And that is total nonsense because what they're doing is feeding into this idea that somehow abortion is legitimate health care like uh, you know, cancer treatment, which you would travel to get. Um, but they don't realize that women don't travel for an abortion. Uh, that distance is a definite deterrent. Even the Supreme Court, the pro-abortion Supreme Court, affirmed that years ago. Um, we have all the data from the Obama years where the state passed record legislation, um, and it closed a lot of abortion facilities. And so women decided not to travel even within their own state. Um, and so you'll hear these stories of these women leaving Mississippi and going to California, but that, that's just the media propping them up. They do not have the numbers, and we're going to see a lot of abortion facilities close. Uh, in our country. And that's not a bad thing. And and then you at the same time, you got the Biden administration trying to sell the idea, that, correct me if I'm wrong, that the Pentagon ought to say to a young lady who got pregnant uh, and doesn't want the baby, which means maybe she should have thought of that before she got pregnant, you know, because that's that's how you make conscious decisions about creating life or not creating life. And they want to say, well, the Pentagon should give her three weeks off and, you know, travel allowances, you know, airplane uh, money, hotel money, so she can go to another state and obtain an abortion. And I think most Americans are going to say, that's what the Pentagon is paying for? Because that's exactly what the White House wants. And you say, okay, see how that works with voters. Beyond that, it's so condescending to the great women who serve our military. Because they're saying to them, hey, the only reason, the only way this relationship will work out is if we pay for your abortions. They're not asking women to be pro-life for all they know. I mean, the whole notion that, you know, you're only here serving our country, your motivation is that we will pay for you to travel when, of course, you get pregnant. That's inevitable. It's so condescending and and, and degrading. And by the way, they're not going to do it when the, the same uh, service man or woman says, hey, um, my kid has leukemia. Will you pay for my travel to MD Anderson in Houston? They're not going to pay for that flight. They're going to say no to saving the kid's life, but they'll say yes if you had decided a few years earlier to end the kid's life, right? And, and that makes and, and that's that's not that doesn't sound like we're compassionate and they're a bunch of monsters. 
Right. And and who knows this are the people in the military, the people that work for these corporations where the CEO said, I'll pay for your abortion and I'll pay for the travel like a loser high school boyfriend. They know when they're being talked down to. And they know also when something is just strictly political and they could care less about your well-being. And this fits perfectly into that category. Well, we need to grow some Republicans with a backbone at this point. That's Sean Carney, who's CEO and president of 40 Days for Life. Sean, it's always a pleasure to have you on. And that's how you ought to take a look at this. If any of your Republican favorite candidates start saying, well, we don't want to call ourselves pro-life, ask them if they've got a backbone or not. 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll at Lars Larson Show. And you're listening to the Radio Northwest Network. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. If you don't like the Lars Larson Show, maybe you should get tested. One of the symptoms is losing your sense of taste. Let's go, Brandon. This is the Lars Larson Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And back on Capitol Hill, they're wrestling with the debt ceiling because America has borrowing authority. Only it has run out and the debt ceiling has not been lifted. And should we lift it? I am among those. I wish we could just say, you can't lift it at all. You're going to have to live on what you've got because the debt is now approaching $32 trillion for the country, and that doesn't even count all the unfunded mandates, monies we promised to pay to people in Social Security and Medicare and a lot of other things that we don't have the money to pay either. So I thought we'd talk to our good friend, Representative Ben Klein, member of Congress, Republican, who represents Virginia's 6th Congressional District, Representative Klein, welcome back. Lars, great to be back with you. I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to see this in two ways, and I do want to get to Title 42 in a moment, but in one way, I'm inclined to say, hey, that's what you've got. No more borrowing authority at all. Live within your means and have them just take a meat axe to a whole bunch of federal agencies that I think we'd all be better off without, starting with the Department of Education and maybe a few others as well. Uh, but that's that's the kind of action that never really happens on Capitol Hill. The other alternative would be to say, OK, you're going to have a little more borrowing room. You will cut hard in the budget and that has to happen or you don't get the additional borrowing authority. 
And now we've got Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, saying, hey, June 1, America will, for the first time in almost a quarter of a millennia, default on its debt if you don't raise the ceiling. And you got Chucky Schumer over in the Senate saying, uh, yeah, let's put this off. We'll have a meeting about it next week sometime. Uh, but And pushing us closer to the deadline. You give me your, what's your approach? How should we solve this problem? Both not have the government default, continue to pay its bills, but cut back the ridiculous overspending of the federal government. How do we get that done? Well, you put a package together where you only increase, you only uh, push the ball down the field a little bit. Uh, in this case, $1.4 trillion to next year, to next spring. But you include, along with it, several reforms, not just uh, rolling back spending to 22 levels, to FY22 levels, and then only increasing 1%. Uh, per year for the next 10 years, but you also claw back COVID money. You put in place a uh, HR1, which restores energy independence. You uh, make sure that you have work requirements for welfare. You make sure that you have um, the RAINS Act, which says any regulation over $100 million coming out of the bureaucracy has to be approved by Congress. All of these things are, are structural reforms which will help us to avoid incurring additional debt and uh, put it on a, a more of a slow uh, increase. We, we will get to the decrease in paying off the debt, but, but we're slowing that, uh, that runaway train that's headed off a cliff that Janet Yellen is warning about. Uh, and that's what passed the House last week. Uh, the Senate has a bill it can send to the president tomorrow if it wanted to, but it it's, has issues. You know, Chuck Schumer has issues with all of these uh, reforms that we've put in place. He's the one who uh, definitely said 10 years ago that we uh, it's normal to have these types of add-ons to uh, the type of debt ceiling that we're passing. And even Biden said the same thing. So uh, all of their hemming and hawing about uh, a clean debt ceiling increase is, is just that. It's, it's not very, uh, very truthful and uh, not in keeping with their past statements. Well, and, and by clean, what they mean is we want the ability to borrow without any strings attached to it. Nobody in the world gets to borrow, except the Congress, gets to borrow without strings attached. Everybody who buys a house, everybody who has a credit card, everybody who has a car loan, hey, you don't pay the car loan or you spend beyond your means, the bank comes and takes your car back. If you If you don't pay on your house mortgage, they come and take your house back. Why is it Congress gets to operate without any kind of consequences when they don't do what they said they'd do? Yeah, Democrats are under the impression that you can spend as much as you want without any accountability. I, I don't think they adhere to this MMT philosophy, modern monetary theory, uh, explicitly, but implicitly through their actions. They just continue to spend trillions of trillions of dollars and then expect that the debt will be covered and that everything will roll along swimmingly and there will be no inflation, there will be no bank crisis, there will be no uh, abandonment of the dollar as the global reserve currency. And and they're living in a fantasy world. All of these things are coming to pass eventually if we don't address it now. By the way, I, I'm not a tinfoil hat guy, Representative Klein, but the let's spend ourselves into oblivion seems to work out very well for the Chinese, who are even deeper in debt. But it works out well if America is crippled by its own debt. Is, is there any possibility that's why Joe's trying to drive us in that direction, because it'll help out his buddies in Beijing that have been so generous to the Biden crime family? Well, Joe, bless his heart, I, you know, he, uh, 
Uh, I, I'm not sure he's aware of how far in debt we are. I'm, I'm not sure he understands a lot of things. But uh, what he is about is the here and now. He's about the uh, his reelection, and he's about spending. So he's been about spending trillions and trillions of dollars in handouts to his supporters, to the Greenies, to the Green New Deal advocates, to uh, the the liberals who want. Uh, the uh, the payoffs of the student loans and the and the payoffs of the mortgages and the and want the uh, people with healthy credit scores to help pay the mortgages of the people without healthy credit scores. These are all just payoffs for him to get reelected, and and that's why he's so ad- adamant about the spending. Congressman Ben Klein from the Commonwealth of Virginia. Back in a moment. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. Larson Show. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Honestly provocative talk with Lars Larson. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. Broadcasting across the Pacific Northwest and covering Oregon, Washington, and Idaho on the Radio Northwest Network. Live. And now. Then we're going to kick the Biden crime family out of the White House. Here's host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette, and my cat. Lars Larson. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Glad to have you on the Radio Northwest Network as well. We serve the Pacific Northwest states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. Have done that for more than 23 years. We'll mark 24 at the end of this year. And we're glad to take your calls, too, at 866-HEY-LARS. But first, I want to talk to my friend Todd Myers, who is the Environmental Director at the Washington Policy Center, about something near and dear to my heart. Uh, and that is whether or not 
the city of Portlandia's Clean Energy Fund actually ranks as one of the worst climate programs in America. Todd, welcome back to the program. How are you? Thanks for having me on. We've talked about this before when the first round of clean energy, so-called clean energy grants came through, and now they're looking at spending another $750 million. Does it strike you that this is going to be comparable to the kind of largesse that we're probably going to see out of Jay Inslee with his new carbon tax fund, too? Well, in, in fact, in Washington State, we have more than a billion dollars in, in excess revenue that they didn't expect to have. So I wouldn't be surprised if many of these same types of programs are done in Washington State. How is it that we can say this is terrible? Because I know every time they, they set up one of these funds and they say we're going to save the planet from global warming and we've got all these great little projects and they're all going to keep less or put less carbon dioxide in the air and all the rest of that, all the promises they usually make. Can we truly, you know, document the fact that these uh, the, these programs are really not worth the money we're paying for them? Absolutely. So the Clean Energy Fund, not surprisingly, given its name, was initially intended and sold as something that would reduce CO2 emissions, greenhouse gases. And in fact, in the report, with all the various categories of expenditures, they list lifetime CO2 emissions reduced. So nominally, the purpose is to avoid CO2 emissions and reduce the risk from climate change. But when you actually look at the amounts that they're spending and how much environmental benefit you're getting, you find that the program is incredibly wasteful. So, for instance, there's a program that is designed to retrofit um, low-income housing to make it more energy efficient. To reduce one metric ton of CO2, they estimate, and these are their numbers, not mine, $10,000 a metric ton. Compare that to comparable projects, which cost $14 a metric ton. Wow. So you're talking about something that is 700 times more expensive than than projects that, are, that reduce CO2 emissions in the private sector. It's incredibly wasteful. So why are they, I mean, do they just not have things that they could do that would make more difference at a lower cost? Because that's my, that would be my first suspicion. That because after decades in the Northwest of governments pushing the idea of weatherization and all the other things that you would use to reduce energy use, um, that, that is kind of tough to find anything that's, that gives you a lot of bang for your buck. I'm not defending the idea. I'm just saying they promised to spend it on this kind of stuff. And then when they actually looked at it and said, well, how much can we do? Up oh, 10,000 bucks to get a metric ton of carbon out of the air. Is that the best we can do? And do you think that is, or are they serving some other agenda? Is that a possibility? It's absolutely that they're serving another agenda. There are lots of things that we can do to reduce CO2 emissions for far less and far more effective. And the thing that I always point out is if you believe that climate change is an existential crisis, if you really believe that, you would never do these things. If I said, you know, my child's education is the most important thing to me, and you said, well, well what, are their, what are their grades? And I said, oh, I don't know. I never look. <laughs> it would be very clear to you that I actually didn't care about my child's education. The same thing is true here. The fact that they are spending so much money and getting virtually nothing in CO2 reductions shows that they have another agenda. And it's not surprising that the money $750 million, the vast majority of it, is going to politically friendly organizations and projects and things like that rather than reducing the risk of climate change. So they're going to use some of this money instead of to benefit the climate to benefit the Democrat Party. Is, is it fair to say that? 
I mean, it's not going to benefit the Republicans, is it? Well, I don't know that it, 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 to be clear, it's not benefiting them directly. But, you know, politically allied special interests are certainly the ones dictating where this money goes. And it goes for projects, you know, that are uh, very, you know, on the left, um, that, that reflect that ideology. But what they don't reflect is benefiting the environment. And so that, I think, is the fundamental problem. When you call something the clean energy fund, and at the end of the day, when it does almost nothing to provide clean energy and reduce CO2, it's a bait and switch. Now, is anybody, including, say, the official auditors you know, of government, because almost every government has an auditor position in it, are they pointing out this nonsense? No, and, and in fact, what... It, when confronted with this, the leaders of the environmental community who support it and city officials say, well, of course, you know, but there, yes, that's true, but there are other things. And so, for instance, there's a quote from the Sierra Club in the Oregonian that says, the primary drive for putting together the Portland Clean Energy Fund was to guarantee that there would be community benefits for the people who are usually F out, left out due to systemic racism. Well, that has nothing to do with the promises that were originally made, right? It is now about systemic racism and other things like that and those justifications rather than, you know, addressing what they say is an existential crisis. Okay, so, Todd, where can people read the report you put together? It's at WashingtonPolicy.org, and I go through the report. And, again, I'm using their own numbers, not mine, and their own numbers show the failure of the program. See, they gave you the rope with which you can hang them. Metaphorically, of course, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, sometimes when you actually look at what they're doing, um, you can see it's very clear that their rhetoric doesn't match uh, the results. Todd, thank you very much. That's Todd Myers, Environmental Director of the Washington Policy Center. To your calls, let me get Kirk on. Kirk, I understand you own a dealership selling Liberty Safes. We were talking about Liberty Safes and the way I think the company sold out its customers by handing over the backdoor combo to the FBI without a warrant. What do you say about that? You said there's a defense to that. Yeah, well, they've changed the policy. They've since changed the policy. That policy was not enacted back in the 80s when people liked each other. Now everybody doesn't. But um, the whole idea of the, uh, the access code was originally intended to help customers that had a loved one pass away unexpectedly, just forgot their combo, hadn't used it in a while. Uh, there was really no upside for Liberty other than to help its customer base. And uh, in the case how, Okay, of, so tell me how they changed the policy, because I've been watching it. I haven't seen any change in policy. Yeah, uh, and you can go to LibertySafe.com. No, I want to hear from you. How has the policy changed to protect us from the government coming in and saying, we want the combo to Lars is safe, I don't have a Liberty Safe, and, and does Liberty now say we won't give it to them? They do. They have to be subpoenaed directly for the safe. Why didn't they do and that a long time ago, very quickly? Again, back in the 80s, they had a different policy. People liked the police and trusted the police back then, and things have changed, and they didn't get to changing it. And it just... That's sad. Thank you, Kirk. I appreciate it. You're listening to the best of the live lesson show.
are you? I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you. Your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com. Why look so awfully tragic? Put on a happy face. Yes, he has a face for radio. All the same, check out the Lars Rumble Daily at Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And at this point, we don't know whether or not we're going to get a federal government shutdown or not. I imagine that at the last minute, they could come to some negotiation ends and say, we've saved the day. My goodness, the federal government will still perform, uh, at least as it performs right now. Uh, frankly, I'm one of those people who wouldn't mind if a lot of the federal government was shut down for an almost indefinite period of time. But there's an important point about this, that states have tied themselves so thoroughly to the federal government and more importantly to money from the federal government that they become, well, if not dependent, at least uh, they want to see that federal cash coming in and there's trouble when it doesn't. And the guy who made that point best is Ray Nostein, who is a senior writer and editor and future of future of freedom fellow at State Policy Network. Ray, welcome to the program. Thanks, Lars. I appreciate you having me on your show. Did I get that one right or not? I mean, the states are really more tied to the federal government today in 2023 than they've ever been before. Absolutely. I mean, we're becoming serfs, right? I mean, not just citizens, but states becoming serfs to the federal government. It's a big problem. It's a huge, that's why I'm trying to raise issue, you know, raise awareness on this issue because look, the state, the federal government's broken. Your listeners know that. I mean, they're smart enough, obviously, and we're all smart enough to get that, that, you know, no solutions are coming from Washington anymore. In fact, they just make things worse. And the states are kind of the last bastion of maybe to push back against the spending, right? I mean, I think we failed to some extent. We have to admit as voters to sending people who have the courage to put themselves before their own political, you know, put put the, you know, the the virtue of the path of the nation above their own political interests, and uh, we failed to send, maybe send the right people to Washington, or it's a whole conglomerate of a mess, right? And so states, legislatures, are the last bastion that maybe they can push back against some of this federal spending, and that was kind of the point I was making in the piece, is you can set up some oversight committees. You can track where those federal dollars are going. You can create contingency plans because, look, debt matters. I mean, this is going to come to a, you know, a calamity or catastrophe at some point. You just can't continue to spend like we're spending. We're going to be over $50 trillion in debt. I mean, that's an astronomical number by 2033. 
Dan, uh, by the way, know. I've reminded people, Ray, that uh, most recently, the most recent number I've seen, $33 trillion in debt today, expected to hit 50 by 2033 within a decade. And every single day, the interest on the debt today uh, is is over two billion dollars a day? It's sixty nine billion dollars a month. It's 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 going to grow to over a trillion dollars a year just to pay the interest on the debt without paying the debt down at all. And when that burden gets big enough, things get wiped out. I mean, you could wipe out the Pentagon spending uh, and have no military. You could wipe out entitlements and anger everybody who's on any one of the entitlement programs. I mean, there are a lot of bad things that happen when you get that deeply in debt. But how do we get states and officials, uh, you know, to actually take the view, no, we don't have to turn to Washington. We can pay for this locally. Uh, you know, and I see it all the time. I see projects where they say, well, we have to do it this way because that qualifies us for federal money. As though federal money is the magic be-all and end-all to every single project in America. Every bridge, every bus, every train, every anything has to be paid for in part by Washington, D.C. I mean, it's very attractive when you think of Washington, D.C. as the folks with an unlimited pocketbook, even though they don't right, have that's the big. Yeah, that's the big problem with Medicaid expansion, right? I mean, you've, you've created a just a deficit in, in debt spending and the printing of money to fund a new program in a state. And so it's created this catastrophe um, just because it's not paid for. I mean, we, we're continually doing more and more things that aren't paid for. So some of the steps to solve this, I, I think, really is just admitting first that there is a huge debt problem, that we're all going to have a more meager existence, not just our children and grandchildren, but we're living it now right through higher prices the inflating of the dollar, uh, these things are having um, significant ramifications now, whether it be energy, home costs, uh, food costs, all these things that are essentials are, are, are going through the roof. But ways that we can address that is by having oversight of committees and state, having contingency plans, because, look, the spigot's going to end at some point. I know it's not popular to say that, but it's, it's, it, the spending can't go on forever, and, and hopefully not, Lars, that we get to a point where it's just so painful that we have to do something, although I'm afraid that's where we're headed, where we just have to feel more and more pain before somebody actually acts. But there needs to be more oversight in states, right? You have states like Indiana, uh, Utah, Idaho. They have contingency plans within their budget that if there's a shutdown or if state funding dries or, or federal funding dries up, that they actually have plans for some of these programs, whether to run them or scale them down. I mean, these are things that we have to think about going forward. So you can also do... Um, legislation, uh, whether it be through an executive order in a state or a legislative by a you know, executive order through the governor, legislature, and this is a good maybe reason to contact your lawmakers to say, look, where are these federal dollars going? Why do we need these federal dollars? Um, who's benefiting from them in the state? And so a lot of these legislatures don't know where these dollars are even going, just money pouring into the state, right, so they can go back to their constituents and brag, well, we've got more federal money, but they don't really know. Uh, there's no accountability to some of these dollars. So you can set up, um, you, you can set up, uh, agency, uh, basically you have to approve funds by the legislature for, for an agency to get a grant. These are all things state legislatures should be doing, right? We have a separation of powers for a reason. And right. we should be pushing back to some of this spending. And we don't have it in enough state. We have a few states making some initial steps, but it needs to ramp up because our gov our federal government is totally out of control. I mean, it's, 
it's catastrophic what's happening because it's going to create a more meager existence for all of us. I'm talking to Ray Nothstein, who's who's a senior writer at State Policy Network. Let me throw something else at you. I, I agree with you on all the oversight, but here's the problem. There are things in life that have an incentive. If I pass on a piece of cake, you know, and do that enough times, maybe I lose five pounds. If I if I put a hundred dollars in from every paycheck instead of putting it in my pocket, I put it in the savings account. There's a reward at the other end for any state that goes to its people and says you're sending all this money to D.C. and every other state is taking as much as they can put their hands on, but we're not going to. There doesn't appear to be a reward. It's a perverse set of incentives to say we should engage in self-denial we should not file and you know file for grants and ask for all this money all the other states will have more money accessible to them uh, but we'll get the warm fuzzy feeling of knowing we've done the right thing which should be enough but but imagine going to your constituents saying our state is not going to take any federal money at all we'll free ourselves from all the strings but when your constituents say well what do we get for being the self-sacrificing ones who don't take the money while all the other states are taking the money, what do we get at the other end? And I guess it's uh, the satisfaction of knowing you did the right thing, right? I think that's part of it. I mean, not to sound overly simplistic, but you already have some states making this case, at least in some areas. Tennessee and Utah are talking seriously now about rejecting federal education dollars. They're having serious discussions in the legislature. So I do think that at least there is some movement in that direction to do the right thing, to say, hey, look, we can actually get by without some of this money, and we don't have all these strings that end up costing us more money in the long run. And look, I mean, you're putting your state on a better path fiscally to sustain itself, to be a state that I think maybe in the long run, that's more revenue because you'll have people flocking to those states that aren't bankrupt, that you know, just rely on all the federal cash, and now have created a disaster because they're not self-sufficient, large. It's completely made themselves out to be a sir. That's Ray Nostein, senior writer at State Policy Network. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. I don't want to get going because I have to keep you here too long because you know all what I'm about to what I've said and you know what I've done and you know what we're doing and you know what I know what you're doing. Let me close with this. He's a president now, baby. He don't even know his name. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's such a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. We'll do that a bit later. But I have the great privilege of welcoming to the program Melinda Rivera, who is president of a group called LUCA. It's Latinos United for Conservative Action, which just, Melinda, you told me I could call you Melinda. Melinda, it warms the cockles of my heart uh, to know that there are Latinos out there that are pushing for a conservative America. Welcome to the program. And Tell my audience about why Luca exists. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's such an honor. I, I, you know, I get so excited when I get to speak about Luca. So um, the reason why Luca exists is that we know in this country right now, and I'll tell you, I've spoken to many representatives. I spoke to some great representatives in, in Oregon and just around the country. Um, the Hispanic and Latino community, we are literally becoming the majority in this country. Uh, many people don't know, I am in Texas right now, and in the spring, we just became the a majority of the population in Texas. We are in New Mexico, where I'm originally from, 
Nevada, Arizona, California. So, you know, everybody agrees that the Latino community is going to be the community that helps lead our country out of such a horrible place that we are all in. Now, the most important part of our uh, organization is the united, right, and the conservatism and the action. So all of that is what's really important. We unite. I'll tell you what. We have some great friends and other organizations. They're from India. They are conservatives here in Texas, and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they are so upset. So we unite ourselves with our fellow Americans. That is how we're going to win this. Um, Our conservatism is huge. Um, It is about we the people, right, Lars, our founding fathers. That document says we the people. It does not say we the government does not say we the Democrats, we the Republicans. It is we the people. And we have been stagnant for far too long, um, I believe. And I think uh, many of us, I can't think back that my mother, grandmother, uh, growing up and really watching them, getting involved in the school board, school districts, showing up to town halls, doing what it takes to really hold this government, um, you know, the government body accountable. And so it's time. We can see what that stagnation and, you know, just being complacent has really done in our country. Well, let me ask you something, Melinda, if you'll allow me a little latitude, because I know we all get in trouble when we stereotype. Uh, Liberals stereotype conservatives all the time. But when I think about the Hispanic people I know, I think, let's see, very hardworking, generally coming Mm -hmm. from families of faith. Uh, believe yeah. in in children and family and a nuclear family and going to church and and worshiping and 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 working hard and keeping yeah. your most of your paycheck. I, I look at that and over the years I've said, on paper, almost every Hispanic, Latino, whatever term you want to use in America should be a conservative because the liberals Absolutely. tend to be everything but the things I just mentioned. So help me figure out why. Uh, for a long time, the Democrats have been able to treat Latinas as though we own that group of people. They'll all vote for us. I don't understand that. Well, I'll tell you what, Lars, and here's the thing. Um, you know, I grew up in southern New Mexico, and I can tell you what we heard, and, 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 and anybody can uh, share this with you, that the Democrats are for the poor. That is the big lie that we have been told for a long time. I joke around sometimes and I tell people, you know, as a Hispanic uh, child, I think when I was born, I had uh, automatically Democrat time uh, stamped on my birth certificate. So, you know, the <laughs> fact that we were told that they're for the poor, because when you grow up in places like I did in, in you know, a little rural area of Artesia, New Mexico, um, here's the thing. When, when, and you hear about the Republicans, that they're for the rich. They only help the rich. And if you think about it today, the Democrats still stereotype it that way, that the Republican Party is just made up of a bunch of rich white men, right? That's what they try to say. That's what they Um, say. But, you know, here's the thing, and and here's a message that really resonated with a lot of my fellow New Mexicans where I'm from. You know, New Mexico has been democratically held, the legislation side, for almost 100 years. And statistically, we are the number one state that has the highest populace of Hispanics. But if you look where we rank in this country, we are last. We are last in education. We are last in health care, last in opportunity. We're only at the top of the list. We're top two for high violent crimes in the country. We are number one because we get the most federal funds. We have a high poverty rate. 21 Native Americans in our state live in worse conditions, I would say, almost like third world countries. And it's sad. So here's my question to my fellow New Mexicans. 
If the Democrats are supposed to be for the poor, like what we were raised to understand, then why, after almost 100 years, are we still poor? Why are we last? Right? I mean, it, it sounds like a makes simple no question. Sense. And it makes so no when, sense. Really, when you put that into perspective, then it, it's not true. The Democrats what? are not for the poor. They have kept us poor. And I'll tell you what, I really... Um, you know, started my or I started my own organization in New Mexico called uh, it's hashtag New Mexico, and it stands for New Mexicans exiting the Democrat Party almost after a hundred years. <laughs> and so, um, people are really waking up to that that you know being democratically held has really gotten us nowhere. And so, you know, we, when we look at our rankings in this country, it's really sad. And being last in education, and this is what I compare to people. You know, back in the real slavery days. When there were slaves, and you just even other countries, they didn't allow them to have books. They didn't allow them to be educated. Why? Because they were easier to control. Yep. And so, you know, um, there's a lot of facts that can be uh, looked at. And people, undeniably, they cannot sit there and, and, and really look at this and say, well, you're, you know, you're wrong. Because we, you, you can't, not being democratically held and not ranking in the position that we rank. So I'll tell you, and it's pride that a lot of the Hispanics and and those in the Latino community that are still holding on to that Democrat, um, and then you know they're they're holding on to the the, just the lies and the rhetoric that um, the Republican Party is you know corrupt and they're they're just full of just rich white men, and especially when Trump came into play that he was racist because he said Mexicans are. Murderers, but you know what? I, I remind people to go back and listen to what he said coming down that elevator. Yeah, because he didn't escalator. say that. You know no, that. He didn't. I mean, what he said, he said and, and Melinda, I would loud. back that up. A disproportionate yeah. share of people who enter the country illegally are involved in criminal activity. But legal, yeah. you know, entrance, and I want legal immigration. Uh, one yes. last issue. Well, I want you to address this. I'm talking to Melinda Rivera, who is president of LUCA. That's Latinos United for Conservative Action. And I'm excited that, you know, if you get Americans who are of Hispanic descent to say, I, I know the Republican Party is for entrepreneurs, is for freedom, is yes. for low taxes, is for yes. personal freedoms and protecting our kids against the indoctrination they're facing, uh, sexual and otherwise in school. But let me ask yes. you about immigration, because we now have a Democrat president in Joe Biden who's thrown the southern border open and nine million have come in illegally. That can't yes. be good for American citizen Latinos, is it? No, absolutely not. And and it has really now put us in a in a, a much harder position uh, for, you know, doing what we are. So what we have to do is we have to remember um, to when we contact those in the inner city. I mean, Lars, the, the reality is there are many here that are illegal and yep. the Democrats have have really gotten to them before we could, obviously. Right. Because they're the ones that gave them that golden ticket to come in for free. And I'll be honest with you, many of us do believe that they are offering them full, uh, a full ride. I mean, can they vote? And they are. Hey, you know, they are. Thousands and so, of dollars, a plane ticket anywhere in America, yes. and all at the expense of some of your constituents who get to pay yes. the tab, even though your, your constituents of Luca did it legal. Mm -hmm. That is Melinda Rivera, president of Latinos United for Conservative Action, Luca. We'll be back in a moment. I'll get to your calls at 866-A-LOCK. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at lawrencelarson.com. Vote in our Twitter poll. Check out our...
with me on the phone today is David Moore with Equity Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about 1031 exchanges. But how do you explain it to customers? Well, Lars, 1031 exchanges are over 100 years old at this point. They allow people to exchange out of one property into another, keeping their equity intact. For example, let's say you own an apartment building and you'd like a larger one. You can sell the property, pay the tax, or you can do an exchange deferring all capital gains tax. Is it complicated? It can be complicated, but the exchange can be as simple as selling one property and buying another using the professionals at Equity Advantage. Would you like to learn more about 1031 exchanges? Then go to 1031exchange.com, view the videos, and then let the 1031 exchange professionals at Equity Advantage show you how it can work for you. You've worked hard for your money. Let Equity Advantage work hard to keep it yours. Visit 1031exchange.com. And fix stupid. Stupid is forever. But you surely can vote them out. This is the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show and the Radio Northwest Network, serving the states of Oregon, Washington, and Idaho with honestly provocative talk on a daily basis. Our Twitter poll today, should elected officials be prosecuted for crimes in office even if they resign that office, I would say yes to that. Too often, states, not just Oregon, but other states, have allowed crimes in office. And as long as the person resigns the job, they're then, oh, we're just going to move on and forget about those things. I don't think that's right. Average citizens who commit crimes should be prosecuted for them, and they usually are. Public officials should be prosecuted for crimes they commit and not this, well, we feel sorry for them because they lost their job and they were humiliated. So I'd say yes, you can vote any way you like at Lars Larson Show. And you can also find the Twitter poll at LarsLarson.com. Brought to you by Ultimate Truck Services. If you rely on trucks for business, Ultimate keeps your biggest assets on the road and running right. Find them at UltimateTruckService.com. Now, we've talked quite a bit over the last couple of years about the Greater Idaho Movement. This is the movement by a number of counties, mostly in eastern Oregon, uh, that said we're tired of what is done to us by the politicians in Salem. Uh, I've kind of been surprised that there been, has been an equivalent movement in Washington state. They said, why don't we just join Idaho instead? It's a long, tortured process. It has to be approved by the state that's uh, affected both of the states, and it has to be approved by the U.S. Congress, so it's a long ways away. But now we're keeping an eye on what's going on with the opposition to that movement, and Matt McCaw joins me now, who's with the Greater Idaho Movement, so he'd be in favor of this. Matt, welcome back to the program. How are you? I'm good, Lars. Thanks for having me on. So if I haven't misspoken in any of that description, Tell me what's going on with the opposition movement and what's driving the opposition movement, and are they following the laws? Yeah, so what's driving the opposition movement, I, I couldn't tell you. But what we have been going, Lars, county by county in eastern Oregon, and, and our idea is simple. Eastern Oregonians are far more similar to Idahoans uh, culturally, economically, politically, socially, than they are to Western Oregonians. And, and so... Eastern Oregonians would prefer to get 
their government, their state government from Idaho because it's government that matches their values and understands their way of life and, and they feel would protect that way of life. So we've been going county by county in eastern Oregon and putting this to a vote. And, and when we put this in front of voters in eastern Oregon and say, do you want your elected leaders to look into uh, moving the border? Then we're getting Eastern Oregon voters are, are overwhelmingly saying, yes, we do want this to move forward. So up until this point, we have not had a lot of opposition. Uh, we have, you know, gotten on the ballot in these counties. There has not been a lot of formal opposition to us, um, and, and we're winning these elections. And, and kind of for the first time, we're seeing some organized opposition, but it is very difficult to tell where it's coming from. They're sending flyers. They're running ads on YouTube and on Pluto TV. Lars, I'm sure you know and your listeners know that when you're running political activities, everything has to be documented. There's transparency laws about what, who's giving money, who's spending money, and, and how that's being done so that voters know who's trying to push their message and, and you know, get their voice heard in their communities. Yep. Whoever's doing this and allow a county in opposition to us, isn't, it, there's, we don't know any of those sorts of things. There's been no um, documented anything uh, with the state officials. And and yet you're right, Matt. I mean, I think all of us, it, it's a it's a bit of a bother when you're running a camp. I've never run a campaign, but I know they say, oh, you have to file all this paperwork. Where did your money come from? How did you spend your money? Uh, you know, who's involved? So you can say, oh, now we know the forces that are opposed against each other. The public has a right to know. And I agree, especially with the approach you've taken. Put it to a vote of the people. If the people in one county say, nah, we don't want to join Idaho, or yes, we do, then so be it. It doesn't determine anything. Ultimately, has to be determined by the legislature. But if the legislature faces four or five or 10 or 12 counties that all say, we want to leave, and Idaho has at least said, we're open to the idea, we would welcome you under the right circumstances, it'd have to be signed off by both states and then ultimately by the Congress because it's the boundaries of the state. So... But if these people are breaking the law by not reporting this information, they're being allowed to do so. And I hate to say it, but, Matt, the Secretary of State of Oregon just resigned over corruption. <laughs> and, and, right. and she, and I'll remind you, her first job is auditing state agencies. Her second job is overseeing election activities at the statewide level. So it sounds like the very person who is supposed to keep an eye on this kind of stuff was actually off working for a weed company for 50% more money than she was making it as, as her job as Secretary of State. Does that suggest maybe right. a reason she was uh, not paying attention to her actual job? Right. And, and we have done, you know, we've done some investigation as an organization because we're very upfront and we let people know, you know, people know who we are out here in Eastern Oregon and we send flyers. We, we, everything is transparent. Everything's filed correctly. The people of Eastern Oregon know what the Greater Idaho Movement is. Um, we've had to do some digging up and say, who are these people? Where are they coming from? It appears that it's groups out of the Portland area, Western State Strategy, which is a progressive group in Portland. Um, another flyer that tries to, you know, uh, disparage Eastern Oregonians is coming from uh, Ben Unger, who's a former um, lawmaker from the Portland area. So, you know, we're, we're starting to see some pushback, and it looks like it's pushback that it's coming from out of state, from or not from out of state, but out of our uh, region and, and from the Portland metro area. Absolutely right. That's Matt McCaw with the Greater Idaho Movement. We're going to continue following it. We'll be back in a moment. I'll get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You're listening to the Lars Larson Show. You're listening to the best of the Lars Larson Show. 
Lars Larson. I'm on the phone today with David Moore from IRA Advantage. David, for more than 15 years, I've been telling my listeners about self-directed IRAs. But how do you explain them to your customers? Well, Lars, through our working careers, we accumulate savings in our 401k plans. So rather than just rolling those funds over when you leave your job, you may want to think about setting up a truly self-directed IRA. With a self-directed IRA, your retirement portfolio can include real estate, precious metals, cryptocurrency, notes, loans, and even a new business startup. So with a self-directed IRA, you're not limited to equities like stocks and bonds? Exactly. There are so many more options that you can consider for your retirement portfolio. Would you like to learn more about self-directed IRAs? Then go to iraadvantage.com, view the videos, and then let the self-directed IRA professionals at IRA Advantage set up a self-directed IRA for you, your retirement, your way. Visit the professionals today at iraadvantage.com.